to your Catholic drive time, keeping you informed and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about Him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information from the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic drive time. With Joe McLean and Emily Alcaraz. Praise to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time. Keeping you informed and inspired. I'm your host, Joe McLean. So good to be on with you. Good morning to you. Praise be to God. Is it too late? Is the hour too late now? The day is long in the tooth to save Western societies, Western civilization. Is it all over? That's the question I want to ask Devin Foley, our guest in our guest segment today from the Charlemagne Institute. He's going to be our guest. It's going to be a great show. We're looking forward to it. Of course, uh, in addition to that, we're going to have David L. Gray. He's going to be on talking about gun control. And uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation around a Catholic perspective. The violence and the shootings that have happened recently and the gun control legislation and executive action that's being considered uh, in Washington, D.C. right now. Gun confiscation is part of the conversation. How do we feel about that as Catholics? David L. Gray is going to be our guest in our What's Concerning Us section to talk about that. So Devin Foley, Charlemagne Institute in our guest segment, and David L. Gray in our What's Concerning Us segment. It's going to be a jam-packed hour. We hope that you can join us. Plus, uh, of course, we're going to have breaking news and stories, Saint of the Day, Gospel of the Day, and so much more. Good morning to you, Emily Alcaraz. Good morning, Joe. Almost to Friday. We're Like, we're almost there. Praise so be to God. So close. It's been yeah. a great week, though. It has been a very interesting week. Our second hour is not normal this week. So has that thrown you off? I feel like we next week when we go back to our normal schedule, I'm going to be totally off. Yeah, yeah, because uh, it, we've been starting really late. So I feel like my entire day has been kind of off to a late start as well. But yeah. it's been good. It's been fun. It's been great. So the second hours aren't normal. They're not, they, they've been pushed back to the 9 a.m. Central, 10 Eastern hour. If you're able to join us in the second hour, we surely love to have you. But speaking of off-kilter, Adrian Fonseca is here on the ones and twos. Good morning to you. Good morning, Joe. I'm happy to be uh, off-kilter today. I'm uh, going to spend the rest of the day slightly angled with my head like that. <laughs> slightly angled. Yeah, just, that's just how I'm going to be. Uh, Praise be to God. The whole day. Now, I may or may not have uh, photographic evidence of the uh, of the relationship, the deep friendship, uh, and uh, the personal besties. Jesus Robles, friend of the channel, uh, friend of the show, and uh, and our producer Adrian Fonseca. I may or may not have a photo of them hanging out together in the same room. Yes, Jesus had to uh, come by the studio to pick up his check. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be posting that later over on uh, Facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. If you want to see that, I'll be posting it there. Uh, so if you're good morning, if you're hanging out with us on Station of the Cross, it's always great to hang out with you. You know, I, I was just thinking, too, uh, we haven't seen Kathy in a while. Our friend from Danvers, who's a frequent uh, friend of the show and uh, and always hanging out with us. So hopefully everything's fine. We should check in with Kathy later today just to make sure she's good. But if you're hanging out with us on the Station of the Cross, good morning, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, New York, Ohio, wherever you are. We're, we're glad to have you on board. Of course, Guadalupe Radio Network, good morning to you. Thank you for hanging out with us today. We're going to jump into our show. Uh, so much to discuss. The, the Western civilization, is it on the brink of collapse? Devin Foley will talk about that in the uh, guest segment. Let's pray for your intentions, whatever is on your heart, your mind, whatever you're 
challenge with today. We're going to ask our Lady Queen of Heaven and Earth to intercede on your behalf as well as our own intentions here at the, at the channel. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. And now the headlines with Emily Alcaraz. Governor Ralph Northam signed a bill on Wednesday ending the death penalty in Virginia, making the Commonwealth the 23rd state to abolish the practice. Throughout its 412-year history as an English colony and a state, Virginia has put to death almost 1,400 people, more than any other state, according to uh, AP News. Since 1976, Virginia has executed 113 people, more than any state except Texas. It is now the first southern state to end capital punishment. The Virginia Catholic Conference supported the repeal legislation, which was approved by the state's legislature this month. Although Catholic groups, including the Virginia Catholic Conference, praised Wednesday's action, they have criticized Northam in the past for his efforts to expand abortion in the state. Northam sparked a national controversy in 2019 when, during a radio interview on a bill legalizing third trimester abortions, he infamously defended infanticide. Rodrigo Duterte, president of the Philippines, said the government will force local churches to close if priests hold public masses in defiance of public health orders. A local bishop, however, has argued that masses held at low capacity are a safe way to maintain public worship, especially during Holy Week and Easter. In an attempt to combat a surge in coronavirus infections, new government restrictions in the Philippines have banned public meetings, including religious gatherings. Presidential spokesman Harry Roque, Roque said Tuesday that the government would not be violating religious freedom laws by forcibly closing churches that violate the new restriction. However, Bishop Broderick Babillo, auxiliary bishop and apostolic administrator of Manila, said in a pastoral letter on, on Wednesday that small worship services would still be organized inside churches. And in his letter, Bishop Babillo challenged the unclear definition of mass gatherings and criticized the government's lack of cooperation with religious institutions. And Pope Francis issued a letter on Wednesday cutting the salaries of some Vatican employees as a way to contain costs after the institution's budget projected a deficit of $60 million in 2021. The Pope said that cardinals paid by the Vatican would have their salaries cut by 10%. According to Italian media, the cardinals in the Roman Curia receive a monthly stipend of about $6,000 from the Holy See. The pay of other high-ranking officials and employees of the Holy See in Vatican City State will also be reduced by 8%, and some clergy and religious employed by the Vatican will see their salaries lowered by 3%. In his March 23rd apostolic letter, Pope Francis said that these actions were necessary for an economically sustainable future at the Vatican. One of the main sources of income for the Holy See is the Vatican Museums, which were forced to close for a large part of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. I'm Emily Alcaraz, and these are your Thursday morning headlines through a Catholic lens. Praise be to Jesus Christ in all things. St. Margaret Clitheroe, pray for us. 
St. Margaret Clithero is an amazing saint. I only wish we had more time to, to spend on recalling her life. But she was born in 1556 at York in England. And uh, she was uh, one of many children from Thomas and Jane Middleton, a, a candle maker, a sheriff of York for two years. St. Margaret was raised Anglican. She was married to John Clithrow, a wealthy butcher and chamberlain of the city of York. And they were married on the 8th of July, 1571. But she converted to Catholicism about 400 years before I was ever born, in 1574. She was imprisoned several times for her conversion, for sheltering priests, including her husband's brother, and for permitting clandestine masses to be celebrated on her property. Uh, She faced many, many fines, which her husband was willing to pay, although he remained Anglican. During her trial in Tyburn in London, On the 14th of March, 1586, she refused to answer any of the charges for fear of incriminating her servants, her children, and her husband. Both her and her sons became priests, and her daughter became a nun. You see, in America, we can't be forced to testify against our spouses, our family members, but in England, that's just not the case. She would be pressed to death on Good Friday, the 25th of March, 1586. They put a door on top of her and filled it full of rocks until her her chest cavity collapsed and she would die. Martyr for the faith. Her right hand is preserved at St. Mary's Convent in York, and she was canonized on the 25th of October, 1970, by Pope St. Paul VI. St. Margaret Clitheroe, pray for us. Today is the Solemnity of the Annunciation of the Lord. Praise be to God. And the Gospel today comes to us from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming to her, he said, Hail, full of grace, The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at what was said and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of David his father, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. But Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no relations with the man? And the angel said to her in reply, The Holy Ghost will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible for God. Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I I don't know if I've ever said this before on this show. This may be the first time, but I absolutely love this passage. I I, I absolutely love this verse. I've never said that, right? And this is the first time, I'm pretty sure. This is a 
powerful passage. You want to know why? Because as a Protestant uh, growing up, sort of anti-Catholic, you, you sort of get this sense of these passages from a different angle. And then when you look at them slightly at, a, at an angle you'd never considered before, you see things come together in a powerful way and you're like, wow, how come I could never see this? And this is one of them. Uh, look at how the angel Gabriel uh, refers to Our Lady here. Hail, full of grace. Now, Emily, you're a Greek scholar. Uh, you know the word, kekare tomene. Isn't that a powerful, like, how many times have you read this passage before you probably studied Greek and, and looked at this particular Greek word and maybe skipped over that and didn't see it for its depth? Did you experience that? Yeah, and this is with all the scripture. It just takes on a completely different meaning when you actually go to the roots of the words, to the culture in which those words were used. Yeah, and in and kekare tomene is used uniquely right here. It essentially means she was full of grace, she is full of grace, and she will always be full of grace. Now, one of my favorite jokes, I've been called full of a lot of things. God's grace is never one of them. She is being called full of grace by an angel who came directly from the face of God. Let that sink in for a moment. She is full of God's grace. No other human being can claim that but her. Full of God's grace. There's lots of holy people on planet Earth. Praise be to God for it. But none other than Mary have been called full of grace by an angel directly from the face of God. It's also used as a title. It's not just a greeting. It's a title. This is she is the Gibi Ra. She is the queen mother of the Davidic kingdom. This is part of the reason why her son will inherit the uh, the throne of his father David. And I've always loved to use this as a launching off verse for the the shape, the organization, the hierarchy, the structure, the feel, the smells, the bells of what the kingdom of God looks like on earth through the lens of the Davidic kingdom of King David and his son Solomon. I did a whole talk on that. I've given it to our email list on a couple of occasions. It is a powerful realization of what is going on in this short verse. And unlike Zechariah, who doubted the angel when he encountered him in the, uh, in the temple, Our Lady, she says, Fiat, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done unto me according to thy word. Let us say Fiat today. Let us have faith in God that all things are possible for him. No matter what we face, no matter our struggles, let us give our yes to God. Let us remain in a state of grace and sit back and watch what the Lord will do. Powerful things can happen. May God's will be done in all things. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. David O'Gray will be our guest in the What's Concerning Us segment. That's coming up next. Atheists assert the only real form of knowledge is scientific knowledge, thus excluding any sort of religious knowledge, whether philosophical or theological. Such a belief is called scientism, and it's unreasonable for two reasons. First, it's self-refuting. Its truth cannot be verified by the scientific method. It's a metaphysical proposition, and as such, is not scientific knowledge. But if science can't verify the truth of scientism, well then, scientism itself cannot be a legitimate form of knowledge, in which case, it's self-refuting. Moreover, scientism undermines science as a rational form of inquiry because it denies presupposed philosophical assumptions that are necessary to even do science, such as there's an external world outside the minds of scientists. 
So to reject God's existence on the grounds that it's not scientific knowledge is simply unreasonable. I'm Carlo Broussard with a ready reason for Catholic Answers, Catholic.com. Hi, Joe McLean here, host of the Catholic Drive Time, heard Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Central, 7 Eastern, right here. And I'm proud to tell you that Real Estate for Life is an underwriter of the Catholic Drive Time. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations. Real Estate for Life offers their clients a faith-based experience. Real Estate for Life is online at realestateforlife.org. That's realestateforlife.org. God love you. back to Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. I'm your host, Joe McLean. So good to be on with you, by the grace of God. Again, I want to say thank you to realestateforlife.org for generously being an underwriter, a, a sponsor of a portion of our Catholic Drive Time show, helping to connect buyers and sellers of houses with a faith-based experience and uh, supporting pro-life causes. Their website is realestateforlife.org. Uh, coming up here in just a little while, Devin Foley of the Charlemagne Institute will be in our guest segment to talk about the fall of the Western civilization. Is it too late? Is there anything we can do? Have we lost the culture war? That conversation's coming up. But joining us right now via Zoom chat, my good friend David L. Gray from Talking Catholic and the David L. Gray Show on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Good morning to you, David. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Praise be to God, we are alive. And that yes, counts. Amen. <laughs> that counts. <laughs> You're very chipper for this early morning, brother. I mean, it's good to see you, but man, you have always, yeah, it's always good to see everybody on on the drive time show. You guys always keep us informed, and and so yeah, it's always it's always a pleasure to be here and hear you guys. Well, there's a, a, a bunch of stories I wanted to jump into. One that stood out to me uh, as a guy who served in the Marine Corps. This was very concerning to me personally, and okay. I wanted to get your take as a Catholic. Um. This is a story that says that the headline goes like this, and then this is reported out of the Epic Times. Marine Corps officer warns Congress against classifying Christians in military as religious extremists. So let me say that again. A Marine Corps officer is warning Congress not to classify Christians in the military as religious ex- extremists. I'll read just the first paragraph of this article. We'll link to it so you can read it yourself. But it says, a slide used in a Department of Defense training manual identifies Catholics and evangelical Christians as religious extremists, along with members of the Ku Klux Klan, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, and others, according to the Marine Corps officer. Now, that is absolutely insane you know it's good this is a conversation with you david that's i think is going to lead into my other conversation with devin about the fault of the western society before us and i also wanted to tie in the the, the recent shootings the mass shootings that we've mm. experienced in atlanta and colorado yeah. as catholics um boy how do we feel about this david i mean do you think about it we live in a day and a time where our military may begin the process of expunging its ranks of Catholics. Yeah. Uh, we live in a day and a time where, like, well, there's a headline right now. The Supreme Court is looking at uh, prov- providing authority to police officers without warrants to enter your private property and confiscate your guns, irregardless of whether or not you've committed a crime. Uh, there's another headline that uh, the, the White House is looking at using executive action to, to confiscate what they consider assault rifles. How do we as Catholics feel about this, David L. Gray? It's, it sounds like, to me, it sounds like um, some sort of inquisition, 
right? So it sounds like, as you said, some sort of purge of certain particular ideologies that are inconvenient or are not amenable. And and I, I agree to us then. I think I think as Catholics as we are, we should not be amenable to certain things, right? Um, we have a, obedience to obey the law of God and not moral um, um, public law or uh, government um, laws when they conflict with um, God, right? So, yeah, we're not a minimal people. And so it's interesting that there's a segment of the government that sees us as that. Say, okay, there's a distinction between um, Catholics like Joe Biden and Catholics like Nancy Pelosi versus Catholics like Joe McClain, right? And these people are not amenable. <laughs> and, and so, and, you know, so, you know, I live near a military base, know a lot of people who worked at, at the Air Force Base, and I, I was aware of them recently going through this training um, in response to what happened on January 6th, where about three dozen out of what millions of former right. military right. veterans right. and active duty people, yeah, um, three dozens, um, <laughs> were involved in, in some way, somehow, with what's called an insurrection where there were no guns, mm-hmm. right? And people were let in and escorted and taking pictures. And the ringleader of this whole insurrection was a guy with horns on and didn't have a shirt, right? So <laughs> Um, yeah, so this, this is the, the, the most dangerous thing that's going on in the United States today. And because of that, we need to purge the military of these people who we don't think are amenable to how we want to take this country. You know, I have uh, friends who are still serving active duty in the military. And I've tried to have conversations with them. In the past, we were able to conversate about all kinds of political hot-button issues. But recently, they've said to me, we can't conversate at all about this mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, if there's a record anywhere, it's being looked at. So and we these are interesting times, um, having served in the Marine Corps. And I know personally, uh, I know you have uh, ties and relations to, to the U.S. military right now, David. So I'm sure you can relate to this. The military is a very diverse place. I mean, people yeah. from all backgrounds, uh, all creeds, all colors, all tongues. I mean, uh, it's a very diverse place. And it seems strange to me that... Uh, that Catholic in particular is being pointed out. And I wonder if it's not because of anything that happened on January 6th as much as because we as Catholics affirm the dignity of the human person uh, from conception. We also affirm marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, and we also uh, say that there aren't you know, more than two genders. There's just male and female. Uh, do you think that has anything to do with it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we represent such a large percent of the population, too. I would think maybe they would like to include in that group, you know, people like Mormons as well. I don't think Mormons are amenable. I think they're going to, and there are some areas that they're just not going to change as well. But in particular, Catholics, we have a higher, we have a higher law. We have, we have a dogma that we can't not deviate from. So, yeah, I think it, it is, it is a threat to the way that people want to take this country that Catholics are never going to be reconciled to, What's going on in the military now? They, they, you know, the transgenderism. They wanted, they wanted to pay for people in the military who want to change their, their, their uh, appearance of a gender. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you, Joe. We're not amendable at all. Let's let's talk about the gun violence, the shootings that mm. taken place in Atlanta and in uh, Boulder, Colorado, most recently, and then of course the the ongoing conversation about gun control. Now we all know yeah. about the Second Amendment. We have a right to bear arms. And there's a big debate in their country as to what that exactly means. Um, as Catholics, 
Where do we stand on finding that balance between wanting a society where it's harder for folks to to kill each other mm-hmm. and um, and ensuring the freedoms that that we have as citizens as as children of God? How, where do we fall? Where's this land for us as Catholics, David O. Gray? And, and the church teaches that everyone has a, a right to defense, right? And, and I, th- I think that's what the Constitution is pointing to as well, that we have a legitimate right to defend ourselves against unjust aggressors. Now, to what extent um, should civil society allow people that right? I think I think most people would think, okay, most people shouldn't have bazookas. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. Darn it. <laughs> but, I guess but when I'll we talk about... Now, that's what I think of when I think of an assault weapon. I think of a bazooka. I think yeah. of a guy having like a, a, a tank that's, you know, armed. But, you know, people talk about these assault weapons. You know, assault weapons tend to be nowadays, it tends to be with a semi-autic weapon with a detachable clip, maybe a suppressor. You know, that's what we kind of think of, of an assault weapon. Um, and, and the dangerous thing here is when we start to tell people, okay, well, you have a legitimate right to defense. But you cannot defend yourself with that type of weapon, right? Right. So then we start opening up this door of of once they say not this weapon, then we're eventually going to get to the point where you can't even use a kitchen knife to defend yourself, right? Because mm. all these things and, and and so the problem isn't a weapon, right? And, and so the, from the Catholic perspective, we really have to really bring up conversations about solidarity and that the reason why we um. Uh, society just works better when we respect the dignity of each person, when we see each person creating an image of likeness of God and we're one with each other. There's no, uh, you know, there's no classes of people when, when God looks at us. And, and so creating a just society where we all um, uh, love each other as creatures of God, I think that that's the best thing we can do to minimize, um, you know, the violence and the need, I think, for people to want to defend themselves. David O'Gray is our guest. Uh, Talking Catholic is his podcast on YouTube and other places as well as his uh, show, uh, David O'Gray on the Guadalupe Radio Network, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Central, um, 5 Eastern. Highly encourage you to check that out. Now, here's the thought I have, David. You know, I've felt this way about a lot of things in our society. It doesn't matter the law of the land, like abortion, for instance. Abortion's legal. Well, you know, we can we could have a, a law that says abortion is completely legal all the way up till birth, but yet if we as Catholics evangelize our society and share Christ with people and Christ transforms their uh, their lives, they will take they will not take advantage of their of their ability to have abortions because they will be convicted of the dignity of the human person at conception. Same thing with marriage, right? If we help people understand that they are made in God's image and likeness and have dignity and that their bodies, their their very persons have have a, a significance in the eyes of God and they can't just play play with these things like they were, uh, you know, free willy-nilly playground time, well, then maybe they would not participate in other sinful sexual behavior or other immoral uh, you know, activities in, in life, and therefore the law of the land doesn't matter as much. And I think of the same thing about um, gun violence. Yes, mm-hmm. we can go buy guns. Uh, well, some of us can anyway. I mean, I had to take a background check to buy, to get my guns. You know, I, I had to, you know, they had to go through my records in order to approve me. And, and there's a, my name is on a list. I'm sure the FBI has my name right now. Um, but if, if I believe what I profess, I will not take my gun into a grocery store and kill anybody. Right? right, you know. Right. Um, so the law of the land 
it almost doesn't matter as much as where is the effort by the Catholic Church to convert society for the glory of God and the salvation of souls? Do you see that as a, as a player in all of this, David O. Gray? You know, I always thought that, Joe, I think I always, always felt that too, ever since I became Catholic and I fell in love with the beauty of Catholic teaching and to see how it can benefit everyone. Um, if, but, and I always, since then, I always thought that when I see certain things in the world, especially things that are pervasive and legal, you know, such as abortion, um, it always represented to me like there's some sort of failure on our part as Catholic Christians that we fail to evangelize in in that area because we see a lack of love and, and that's what's going on. And so even, and I like what you said about uh, abortion because that's, that is our preeminent issue because that's where life begins. We cannot defend life at any other point in time if we did not start there because every other person is born, right? And, and so we have to focus there, um, to recognize the value and sanctity and dignity of that life there. And then from there, okay, well, if, that, if it has life has value in the womb, then it must have this sacredness and dignity in other parts of life. And so we respect, respect it there as well. So we can't start at later points. We have to begin there if we're going to be successful in later points. And and, and it's really is it's amazing to me. I like the point you said about, you know, you had a, you had a register to, to get a gun. Um, you had to, you know, had to, you had to get a license if you want to get, carry a, a steel weapon. And I saw a point, there's this thing going around now with what happened in Atlanta and what happened in, in Boulder, Colorado, that, you know, people are saying, well, you know, it's, it's, it seems to be easier to um, to get a to get a assault rifle than it is to get um, to it is to vote. But it's amazing that no one has ever the second no secretary of state has ever mailed me an assault rifle, you know, without <laughs> you know without me beating, without me soliciting it or anything right. like that. So no, I don't think I don't think I think it's easier to get an assault rifle than a vote. So All right, we're gonna have to cut you off, David O'Gray. I'm so sorry we're out of time. DavidO'Gray.info is his website. Check him out. We'll be right back after the very short break. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton minute. How many times have you heard someone say that they don't like the Catholic Church because it's so dogmatic? Well, G.K. Chesterton says, You cannot live without dogmas. You cannot act for 24 hours without making a decision based on some deeply held belief that you cannot prove. Man can be defined as an animal that makes dogmas. Trees have no dogmas. Turnips are singularly broad-minded. In truth, there are only two kinds of people. Those who accept dogmas and know it, and those who accept dogmas and don't know it. So when someone objects to the Catholic Church for being too dogmatic, it only means that they are dogmatic against it, even though they have no idea what their own dogmas are. Want more than a minute? Visit us at Chesterton.org. Howdy, this is Adrian Fonseca, producer of the Catholic Drive Time Show. Heard Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Central and 7 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And I'm proud to tell you that Real Estate for Life is an underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations, offering their clients a faith-based experience. They are online at realestateforlife.org. That's realestateforlife.org. God love you.
Welcome back to the Catholic Drive Time Show. Today is Thursday, March 25th, and these are your headlines for today. Project Veritas has won a victory as part of its defamation lawsuit against the New York Times, with New York Supreme Court Justice Charles Wood denying the paper's motion to dismiss a defamation lawsuit concerning its coverage of the conservative group's investigation of ballot harvesting in Minnesota. Last September, Project Veritas released an undercover video detailing an alleged ballot harvesting scheme orchestrated by allies of Minnesota Democrat Representative Ilhan Omar. The Times characterized the group's work as deceptive, not in its opinion pages, but in ostensible news reporting, prompting the lawsuit. This ruling means Project Veritas will now be able to put a New York Times reporter and their executive editor under oath where they will be subject to the discovery process. And in Canada, youth suicide attempts are skyrocketing due to the lockdowns. A March 15th press release from the McMaster Children's Hospital located in Hamilton, Ontario, reported that the amount of youth admitted for medical support after a suicide attempt has tripled over a four-month period compared to last year, and patients are staying in hospital longer due to more serious attempts. A large number of these youth have reported COVID-related issues such as lack of social interaction, increased conflict at home, and the inability to rely on friends as main contributors. According to the hospital, youth admitted with substance use disorders has also doubled and the use of potentially deadly opioids has increased. The McMaster press release states that the mental health challenges during the pandemic could be the result of many of these factors. Scotland's Supreme Civil Court ruled on Wednesday that the Scottish government's blanket ban on public worship is unlawful. Judge Lord Braid overturned the ban on March 24th in response to a challenge by 27 faith leaders alongside Glasgow Catholic priest Canon Tom White. His ruling came a day after the Scottish government announced that public worship could resume from March 26th with a cap of 50 people. Canon White is dean of the City East St. Alphonsus Church in Glasgow. His parish includes three of the most deprived areas of the UK. And White said that he was inspired to launch the legal challenge by his grieving parish. He launched a crowdfunding site to cover the costs of the legal challenge, but has so far only raised about 35% of his goal. And Bishop Richard Sticka of Knoxville has expressed his sadness on Monday over the restrictions on private masses in St. Peter's Basilica and his hope that they will be removed. In a tweet, Bishop Sticka said, I am sad to read about the restrictions now in effect at St. Peter's Basilica. I treasure all times that I was able to celebrate Mass at the revered place. In the past, my parishioners in St. Louis uh, were very special. I hope this is reversed. The decree which prohibited private Masses says the changes are intended to ensure that, quote, the Holy Masses in St. Peter's Basilica take place in a climate of recollection and liturgical decency. And the decree by the Secretariat of State prohibited private masses at the side altars beginning March 22nd, instead inviting priests to take part in several concelebrated masses held each day at the Basilica. I'm Emily Alcaraz, and these are your Thursday morning headlines through a Catholic lens. Praise be to Jesus Christ in all things. Thank you, Emily, for keeping us up to date. Don't forget, today is Thursday. So what happens on Thursday is we always record 
the reflection on the Sunday Gospel as a team. We go through all of the commentaries that we use on the program, and uh, we've been somewhat uh, lacking in uh, some Aquinas and, and Alapide this week, so we'll have to catch up on Aquinas and Alapide on the Gospel reading for Sunday. And so what we'll do is we'll send that to you via our email list. So if you're on our email list, you'll get that later today. Uh, so praise be to God. Keep a lookout for that. You can get on our email list simply by going to our website, grnonline.com forward slash CDT. It's a great way to do it. Just grnonline.com forward slash CDT. You can find uh, the, the link or you can sign up right there on our website. You're going to get a free talk from Father Bill Casey on the state of the church, the state of the union, where we're at now, where we're going, and what we need to be doing about that. You'll get that uh, automatically as a result of signing up to our email list. So please do that, and we'll send you the email later today with the, the commentary on the Sunday Gospel. Joining us right now uh, via Zoom chat is uh, Devin Foley. He is the founder of the Charlemagne Institute uh, and uh, a, a chief executive officer there, uh, defending and advancing Western civilization. Good morning to you, Devin. Good morning, Joe. How are you doing? Praise be to God, I am alive. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm alive, too. It so. counts, doesn't <laughs> it? It counts. It counts every time. It, it, uh, it does. Now, one of the biggest questions in my mind to, uh, in inviting you on is, is it too late? Is it too late for Western civilization? Have we already passed that uh, sort of a point of no return? I mean, uh, this I was just talking to my friend David O'Gray about uh, the, the shooting incidents, gun confiscation programs. We have H.R. 1 on the table. We have the Green New Deal being implemented through executive action. We have, uh, you know, just all of these uh, things. These trends, the overwhelming uh, crisis at the border, there's just so many things going on right now. Um, critical race theory in schools. I mean, it's just, it seems never-ending. Is it too late for us? Have we already lost this war? Uh, I think that the way we went about doing the... Unfortunately, I think conservatives and Catholics, we fought a political war when we were supposed to be fighting a cultural war. Mm. And we have... I will say we've badly lost the cultural war. I mean, when you think about it, there isn't a cultural institution, if it's education, bureaucracy, entertainment, news, I mean, you go through the list, higher education, teachers, all of that, that are dominated by a very leftist cultural Marxist uh, narrative. So the other part of it, too, is that you have to look at what worries me the most is where you look at the trajectory of where the country's going. And I do have hope, though. So I've got a two track. One is if you look at the numbers, for instance, out of wedlock birth rates skyrocketing. Uh, if you look at uh, millennials having at least one child out of wedlock, it's over 60 percent. That's all races here in Minnesota, in St. Paul proper. The out-of-wedlock birth rate for African-Americans is 90%. Wow. 87% in Minneapolis. Meanwhile, our education system is a disaster with, uh, you know, if your readers want to go to the, na the National Report Card with the National Assessment for Educational Progress, what you'll find is it's a very, very low percentage of high school seniors who are even proficient in subjects. And if you switch it over to look at advanced knowledge of any subject that a high school senior should know, single digits of high school seniors have an advanced knowledge of anything. So from that side, you know, we're, we're a country and a civilization built on self-government. And self-governing starts with governing the self. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the social chaos that we're seeing and even the government 
chaos as well as power grabs is a result of that social chaos and really the wheels coming off of fundamental foundations of society, family, education, belief, church, all of these things. Where I see hope, though, is it goes actually to uh, Dale Hallquist speaking about Chesterton Academy. I do see a lot of hope with parents who are taking their kids, and I'm one of them. I have six kids, another on the way. They've been homeschooled. They're going to private. One goes to a a Catholic high school. And there is a lot of energy, resources, and time being put in by Catholic parents to get their kids the education they need and the spiritual grounding that they need. And these kids, uh, I've had some as interns, and it is night and day difference The interns that we have now, their understanding of things, their devotion to the faith, their seriousness, compared to what I would call, you know, back when I was intern days, you know, the 1990s college Republicans said. So I see a group that's much smaller, but burning very bright and and putting energy into pushing back against the culture. So big picture, I think things look absolutely horrible. (laughs) When you change it up a little bit, I see. I see hope. I see. I see at the very least the opportunity to rebuild, if not the opportunity to ultimately, which is what I believe we have to do, is create a new elite. So I know that was probably longer than a, than a good radio response, but it's it's not an easy question. Devin Foley is our guest. He is the chief executive officer, founder of the Charlemagne Institute. CharlemagneInstitute.org is the website. Uh, and we're talking about the potential collapse of the Western uh, society that we've enjoyed now throughout all of our lives. Uh, you know, one of the aspects that I think is uh, an important point to bring up, Devin, is I see, in my experience as a Catholic, especially full-time in ministry, uh, I see most Catholics choose their politics over their faith rather than allow their faith to determine the trajectory they choose they allow their political party and affiliates to to determine that trajectory do you see that as well i do but i also see the change taking place again with the younger generations i think one of the things i've seen over 20 years of doing this is there's a big generation gap between let's say people who are 60 65 and up and people who are 40 and under, and then uh, 45 and under, and then the 45 to, you know, 60 is kind of a mixed bag. I think that, you know, when you look at the older generation and that old uh, sort of Catholicism as well as conservatism, you know, what are they, they're trying to conserve a past that, frankly, I never knew, you know, so you've got a lot of older people who went the political route, because families were intact when they grew up, education was good, communities were strong. You look at the Catholic philanthropy, whether it's churches, uh, orphanages, I mean, you go through the list of what Catholics had in the 1950s and it was huge. And so there's kind of uh, this, this idea that that's always gonna just be carrying forward. Whereas with younger people, what I do see is this shift that's taking place and it's taking place rapidly where people are Devin, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought. I'm sorry, Devin. You've joined a list of incredible people I have cut off because we got to go to break. So don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with more from Charlemagne Institute. We'll be right back. St. Paul tells us to pray always. Easy for him to say. One Minute Monk, Abbot Placid Solari of Belmont Abbey. But how are we to pray in the middle of a tense day at the office, while rushing to get the shopping done and get home, while picking up our kids and their friends for soccer? In his rule, St. Benedict has a suggestion for us. 
He took short Bible verses or other sayings such as, O God, come to my assistance, Lord, make haste to help me, or Lord, help. These short prayers are like darts which are small and fly straight to their target. Since these prayers are short, we can pray them at any time with full intention. Thus, they too fly straight to God and reach their mark. For your free copy of The Rule of St. Benedict, visit OneMinuteMonk.com. O-N-E MinuteMonk.com So open your Bible, perhaps to the Psalms, and find those darts you can use through the day, and you too can be like St. Paul and pray always. Hi, I'm Emily Alcaraz, and I'm the co-host of the Catholic Drive Time Show, which airs from Monday to Friday at 6 a.m. Central Time. I'm excited to announce our partnership with our new underwriter, Real Estate for Life. Real Estate for Life offers a faith-based experience while supporting the gospel of life. They work with over a 1,000 pro-life agents worldwide and generously support a variety of pro-life organizations. Their website is realestateforlife.org. That's realestateforlife.org. Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. I'm your host, Joe McClain. So good to be on with you. Devin Foley is our guest. He's with the Charlemagne Institute, charlemagneinstitute.org. We'll link to it. We're talking about the Western civilization. Is it already too late? What can we do about it? You know, and uh, Devin seems pretty to be pretty hopeful. Uh, good morning to you, Devin, and welcome back to the show. Joe, thank you. So, no, I'm actually, I'm, I, just to be clear, I'm distraught. I'm ringing the alarm bell, but I do see <laughs> green shoots of hope. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of uh, shoots of hope, uh, you know, uh, it, our, our team here, I'm the only old guy on the whole team, you know, so it's, uh, they're just trying to be nice to me is mostly what it is. But uh, Emily and Adrian are, are from the younger generation, and Emily in the break was saying, you know, she feels like she has lots of hope for, for her generation to, to restore order and tradition. Emily, uh, how do you see that? Right. So I think like in the 60s and 70s, the pendulum just swung way too far. And like you said, we lost the culture war in the past century. But with my generation, we just really feel like we've missed out on all that um, orthodoxy, traditionalism. And so there's this resurgence. But also, I'm seeing this sort of like receding from the culture um, in order, yes, to form ourselves, but also we're very much put on the defense now that we've lost the culture war. And so how do we get back on the offense, back into um, trying to increase our own holiness, but also going into the world to, to change the culture? Now, Emily, that's a perfect question. It's one that we talk about at, the, at my shop, uh, at the shop quite a bit. Uh, how do we go on offense? I think the biggest thing holding us all back is the fact that we do not have a Catholic vision for America, and we're not willing to go there. We are, what you're seeing, your generation is breaking free of the secularism, the sort of enlightenment idea that we can compartmentalize our lives. And you can't. We are flesh. We are soul. We are reason. Uh, you cannot separate these parts from us. And so I think that the challenge before us in the next, in the in the coming years, and we need to do it as quickly as possible, is to coalesce around a positive Catholic vision for America. We need to be saying, no, family's a good thing. Strong fathers are a good thing. Kids need strong fathers to do that. They need you know, to understand that there is a moral order that's discernible and they can measure their life against it. So I think that's the biggest thing holding us back. We do not have a, a, a coalesced 
positive vision of what we want America to be. But don't you think, though, that there's a there's a fear? There seems to be a tr- uh, like a, a timidness or a fear on the behalf of Catholic hierarchy, Catholics in general, to speak out about these issues in our day, to hold the line for the faith, to call a spade a spade. I mean, there's only two genders: people, male and female. He created them. Uh, you know, you see what I'm saying? It seems like we have we see a tendency to go along to get along at almost every level in society, but more importantly, in my opinion, the church. How do we overcome that, Devin Foley? I think, uh, you know, I'm a convert to Catholicism, Me so too. I look at it, and I converted, actually, as a result of doing the work I'm doing and just pursuing truth. When I first came into the church, I was wondering, wait a minute, there's all this great, just incredible wealth of an inheritance with the church, and we're using about this much of it. And I was, and I was always, well, maybe they just don't know about it. Maybe they haven't, maybe they didn't. No, I think it goes to a leadership and a generational issue. You've got, you know, older, and this isn't true of all, but when I look at a lot of the leadership, older leadership across the board, culturally and in the church, you have a lot of people that don't want to let go to the prior order. They got comfortable in secularism. They got comfortable with things sort of broken apart, and they didn't have to make tough choices. The reality, though, and I think this is why younger people are seeing it so differently, is we've grown up. I mean, I'm a child of a divorced home. Father died. I mean, I'm a, I'm total flotsam and jetsam, uh, just like most people or many people our age and, and younger. And we've grown up knowing nothing but an ever more powerful left telling us how we have to live our lives and what's right or what's wrong. And the younger you are, the more you realize there's no choice. This is this is a fight. They may say they're against religion, but they have values and they want all of us to live by their values. Mm. If that's the way the game is played going forward, which it is, embrace our values and don't be shy about it. But that's what it's going to take. It's going to be us being comfortable saying, you know what? I'm done. I'm letting go of the old narrative. And we are going to focus on a positive vision for America and uh, for the world. Um, yes, I was thinking about I was looking at your website. and I noticed that y'all had formerly were referred to as intellectual takeout and then changed the name to the Charlemagne Institute. So why Charlemagne Institute? It seems like this probably has something to do with your conversion. Um, but yeah, I, I love the name, the Charlemagne Institute. And I love like, um, this idea of going back to our patrimony. Um, and so why, what's uh, the Charlemagne Institute? Why Charlemagne Institute? And what is, uh, intellectual takeout in the Chronicles magazine in relation to that? Yeah, great question. So I'll start with the intellectual takeout story, and I'll try and roar through this as quickly as possible. Intellectual takeout, I started that with a couple other guys. We spun off of a state-based conservative think tank in Minnesota. We clawed our way through a few years and then found uh, a very generous benefactor came in, enabling us to build very large social media audiences. The social media audiences we grew were predominantly 18 to 24-year-olds. And we actually matched the audience. We had, you know, 700,000 followers and actually 1.5. And we actually matched them to 
polling and uh, voter registration. Over 60% of the audience was registered as an independent or a Democrat. And that confirmed what we were seeing in the dialogue. And we had to completely change how we go about talking to people about our ideas. And we learned a lot. The big thing that we ultimately learned and came away with as a staff, and we're a mixed staff, we're not all Catholic, we've got Catholics, we've got Protestants, uh, even, even some Jews. So the, uh, and, but what we saw is that you cannot make the arguments of the West with, and even Catholicism without the spiritual underpinnings. And that's why we went with Charlemagne and we chose that. Now, why we went with Charlemagne uh, is because we, we looked at it and we sort of see this, this high tech dark age that's upon us where, you know, people think we're the smartest generation ever because we have a smartphone. Well, that's not this. That's a big difference, huge difference. And so looking at this potential of a high-tech dark age, we went back and we said, we want somebody who's deeply rooted in Western civilization as an example of it. But also we wanted to make sure that it was prior to, uh, you know, this, the schism between the West and the East and prior to the Protestant Reformation. We wanted to make sure that we go back and have somebody who is united. There was only one Christianity, one church back then. And furthermore, that was a very masculine individual who fought the bad guys, did all kinds of stuff, was a man of action. But he also, he's credited at 800 AD uh, when he's crowned uh, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, it's the end of the Dark Age, according to historians. He started, I mean, the amount of the court reform, education investments, all of these things took place under Charlemagne, and it was really an incredible period. So we see it as a as a way to unite a lot of different people in our her- in our Western heritage. Devin Foley is our guest, Charlemagne Institute, charlemagneinstitute.org is his website. Last uh, three, I guess, two and a half, three minutes uh, with you, Devin. Okay, so let's let's give me some practical tips, practical takeaways here. Uh, as I said, stated at the beginning of our conversation, uh, it really feels like we're on the precipice of something uh, of a disaster. What can we do now uh, to either stem the tide or overcome it. Uh, I say prayer, fasting, and penance, but are there any other practical tips you might offer Devin Foley? Absolutely. Do all of those first. The other ones I would say is uh, two things. You know, get your, if your kids are still in a public school or anything like that, get them out. If you have grandkids who are in public schools, offer ways to be able to help uh, your children send their children somewhere better that gives them a Catholic education. The other part of it too, I was just with a group of guys from uh, our church last Monday. It's time that we come back to mutual aid societies and networks, and they need to be offline networks. You're going to need to have networks of friends of of good, solid men, good, solid women, family people who are deeply rooted in the faith. Because I think it's going to, I do think it's going to get real ugly uh, relatively quickly. But I, again, I still have hope. There's always hope in that. Even in the, even in the darkness of the passion, there was, there was hope. So, and, and we saw that. So don't give up hope. And pray fast, stay focused, but do things that will bring together the bonds of community and strengthen us. And I think that the way forward for a while is going, and perhaps for a long time, is going to be for Catholics to sort of ghettoize themselves. We need to build up our network. We need to, we need to come together as a community and say, this is, 
The most important thing is our Catholicism and our beliefs in the salvation of souls. Number two, here's all of the church's teachings on the ha- on civil society and the debates and all of these different things that we should we should consider. Now, Charlemagne Institute has a, a, a youth mentorship program, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Tell yeah, me, we have a. Really uh, unfortunately, because of the COVID thing, we we didn't get to do it last summer and, and not this summer. But uh, yeah, what we ran was Alpine internship. So for anybody who's listening who would have a college age, uh, either child or grandchild, uh, it's a ten week program. Goes for the summer. Uh, four days you're spent working, uh, learning how to write well. We're doing business etiquette. We do an etiquette dinner. Uh, we do weekly seminars. It kicks off with a week-long boot camp. We bring in professors and other uh, noted academics to be able to speak on different topics. It's, cool. it's very good. It's for 10 kids. We also pay. I wanted to make wow. sure that it was be paid. So, All right. Uh, CharlemagneInstitute.org is the website for more details and all of that. Devin Foley, we're very grateful for your time this morning. God bless you and God love you. Godspeed. Thank you, Joe. All right. Have a great day, Devin. That's going to do it for our first hour of Catholic Drive Time. Very grateful to David L. Gray for being on our program, Devin Foley, the Charlemagne Institute, and all of you, dear listeners, for being a part of our program today. God bless you. If you want to join us in our second hour, this is a special, unique week. Our second hour is being delayed to the 9 a.m. Central, 10 Eastern, where we'll be on the air across the Guadalupe Radio Network and beyond. We'd love for you to be a part of that. You can find links to everything at grnonline.com forward slash cdt grnonline.com forward slash cdt god love you god bless you we'll see you back here tomorrow morning thank you for joining us on your catholic drive time where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired join us monday through friday at the same time right here on your favorite catholic radio station don't forget to connect with us just go to facebook.com forward slash catholic drive time again that's facebook.com forward slash catholic drive time be sure to share more than just us today share jesus with everyone you meet bye now and god love you I have a friend who says that baptism is a symbolic act and that it has nothing to do with salvation. How can I answer him? Simple. Show him what the Bible says. Nowhere does the Bible say that baptism is merely a symbolic act. That passage simply does not exist. But the Bible does say this about baptism. In Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, it says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will put my spirit within you. Here in the Old Testament, we have a foreshadowing of New Testament baptism. In the New Testament, Acts 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No symbolic language here. The book of Acts says, Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from your uncleannesses. The book of Acts says, And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel says, And I will put my spirit within you. Do you begin to see how God in the Old Covenant was preparing us for what He gives us in the New Covenant? Acts 22, 16, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. What body was that? The body of Christ. 1 Peter 3, 21, 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Scripture simply does not support the non-Catholic notion that baptism is symbolic. Scripture does, however, very clearly and directly support the Catholic teaching that baptism saves us, that baptism makes us members of the body of Christ, that baptism washes away sin, and that through baptism we receive the Holy Spirit just as the church teaches. A beacon of truth in a troubled world. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We're currently cruising at 39,000 feet. We'll turn that seatbelt sign off for you and let you move about the cabin. Looks like we're about two hours and ten minutes from landing. Plenty of time for you to meditate on Christ's passion. Wouldn't it be great if everyone meditated daily on our Lord's passion? Why not start today? A friendly suggestion from Guadalupe Radio Network.
Praise be to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time and the the commentary, the look at the gospel for the uh, fifth Sunday of Lent. Praise be to God. We're glad that you're with us. We're thanking you for being on our email list and being a part of the, the Catholic Drive Time family and crew or just so grateful to be hanging out with you. But uh, this is where we look at the Sunday Gospels from the commentaries that we all like to use on the regular Catholic Drive Time show. Uh, just as a recap and a review, I am using the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible. It's a Scott Hahn, Curtis Mitch commentary. I also use the Navarre commentary for the New Testament. And uh, I know the team here likes to have their sources. I also like to look at a couple of others. But Emily Alcaraz, good morning. And what are you using? Good morning, Joe. Today I am using the Catena Aria, which is the collected writings of the Church Fathers. So I'm mainly drawing from St. Augustine of Hippo and St. John Chrysostom. Adrian? Yes, I am mostly looking at uh, Cornelius Halapide and his commentary on the Gospel of St. John for today. All right. Praise be to God. We have a lot to get into. And I particularly like this passage. I'm sure I've never said that before, but trust me, this is an amazing passage And I think you're going to enjoy it quite a bit. Let's dive in. It comes to us from John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. Some Greeks who had come to worship at the Passover feast came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, And where I am, there also will my servant be. The Father will honor whoever serves me. I am troubled now. Yet what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But it was for this purpose that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd there heard it and said it was thunder, but others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, The voice did not come for my sake, but for yours. Now is the time of judgment on this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this, indicating the kind of death that he would die. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. The hour has come. This is kind of big news. This is, you know what I love about one of the, I find this funny. I find this humorous. Two Greeks show up wanting to see Jesus. And then, you know, Philip is like, I don't know what to do. I mean, he goes to see Andrew and Andrew's like, I don't know. Let's, right, let's go talk to Jesus. I mean, like, what could be so confusing and so weird about two Greeks wanting to see Jesus? And when they finally reveal the news to Jesus, Jesus, these two Greeks want to see you. What does he say? How is his response? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
I mean, that seems like an overreaction, Lord. All I said was two Greeks are hanging out. They want to come talk to you. They want to get to know you. And you're talking about the hour has come very apocalyptic. I just think that's so funny to me. It's so awesome. But it indicates a powerful reality of what Jesus has come to do and what you and I are called to do as disciples of his. Do you guys, am I the only one who finds that kind of almost amusing? No, it's funny also because um, they were Gentiles who were going for the Passover, right? meaning they were not Jewish. So it's just an interesting situation. So were they circumcised? Were they not? Were they God-fears as as St. Luke is believed to have been? You know, it's an interesting debate anyway. Cornelius Alapide seems to think that they were monotheistic uh, Gentiles, because they believed in the they believed in the one God, but they weren't Jews. Um, but they still try to worship the one God, and I'm, I'm guessing this probably descends from I guess because they're Greeks, probably descends from uh, maybe the Platonist Aristotelian school of thought. You know, but it makes sense though, right? I mean, the the the, the very uh, structure of the temple in Jerusalem, let alone the tabernacle in the wilderness, was designed to bring all nations together, to bring all peoples. So they were simply following, as St. Paul would say, that which was written on their heart, would they not? Uh, coming to this Messiah who would lead them back to the Father. So, But do you find like that re- reaction of Jesus very interesting? Like, Jesus, two Greeks are here to see you. The hour has come! I mean, it doesn't seem like very dramatic. I think it's sad. <laughs> it made me very sad, yeah, because yeah. they didn't know what was about to happen, but Jesus did. Yes, yes, he does. It's fascinating to me. Um, but th- there's something else I think is very, well, there's several stuff in this particular passage, one that I've referenced many times while speaking publicly around the nation. Um, I love the fact that he talks about a grain of wheat that must die. It must fall into the earth and die because then it will bear much fruit. And You should stop and ponder that because, of course, we get the fact that he's using this as a way to describe what he will do when he dies on the cross and goes into the earth for three days. We we know that hindsight being twenty twenty, having two thousand years to ponder the idea, we can get that reference. I don't know if they got it listening to him say this for the first time, but have you also thought about? Wait, hold on. What is the fruit of a grain of wheat? I mean, wheat doesn't have fruit. Fruit trees have fruit. I mean, banana, oranges, I get. But what is the fruit of a grain of wheat? And what could there be? What links could be made here uh, from Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and the life he is promising us, but the Holy Eucharist, the bread of life, you know, that comes down from heaven, that gives us uh, his very grace, his very life, body, blood, soul, and divinity. I mean, I found that to be profound. Have you guys picked up on that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of analogies that can be drawn here, but that's the main one, obviously, is that the body of Christ, the human body, had to be destroyed in a sense so that we could have the Eucharist. And of course, it's like that self-sacrifice in order to feed us the bread of life. Yep. uh, uh, I was actually, when I was in the novitiate, our altar, uh, the crucifix there was actually a grain of wheat uh, with our Lord, the corpus on the grain of wheat. Now, I didn't really like the, uh, the like crucifix. Like a grain or a stalk? It's a stalk of wheat, yeah. And uh, and it, it was kind of it was very strange to look at, but it does get at a good theology, which is that the the grain of wheat that fell to the earth and died is our Lord. That's why Saint John, at the end of this passage, verse thirty three, he says, and this was uh, referring to the way he was to die. 
Uh, so St. John like inserts himself into the narrative and uh, gives that commentary himself there. Uh, but St. Uh, or not St. Cornelius Lapide, maybe St. One Day. Uh, <laughs> Cornelius Lapide, quoting Tertullian, said, which Tertullian is such a tragic character. Yes. We should talk about him sometime. Yes, we should. But Tertullian, he said, the blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church, which this is something that everyone uh, quotes and every, a lot of people reference this. But here's the full quote. He goes on to say, torture us, rack us, condemn us, crush us. Your iniquity is the proof of our innocence. The more exquisite your cruelty, the more does it attract to our sect. We increase in number, the oftener you mow us down. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. <laughs> wow. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> was that, but, is that from the flesh of Christ? Is the uh, reference I there? I don't know. He just yeah. said uh, from Tertullian. Because Tertullian's but, the flesh of Christ is hardcore. Well, the here, what he's referencing here, what he's trying to say is that we, and that's why Cornelius Lapide quotes him here uh, during this passage, is because the grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies, mm. but bears great fruit, obviously, uh, first and primarily refers to our Lord, but in a secondary way, it applies to us. Every single uh, Christian who not want, uh, in two senses, the first sense of literally falling to the earth and dying, mm. but then bearing great fruit as the seed of the church, as bearing great fruit of an increase of us. And so we see this happening throughout history, wherever we are persecuted and murdered, which is why the enemies of the church tried to are now trying to attack the church from within, mm. because they know that every time they kill us, we always grow. Uh, and then the secondary sense of the passage is that we must die to self, which uh, we get to later on in this passage. Now, does uh, Saint Augustine? I know you're looking at Saint Augustine. Does he have anything to say about the grain of wheat? About the grain of wheat? No. Let me see what John Chrysostom had to say. No, Saint Augustine. Mainly, what he was writing about was the the words of Christ, where it's sort of like the agony in the garden there, where he says, "My soul is troubled." Mm. Um, and and so Saint Augustine kind of goes. Well, if God himself is troubled, then what does that mean for us? Ouch, like, ouch. Wow. And, and St. Augustine says, but in those words, he sees the, the great profound love of Christ that he had for us, where he allowed himself to feel that fear and to feel make that his soul was troubled so that he could unite himself with uh, to us because he didn't have to do that but mm. he did he allowed himself to feel that his soul was troubled so that he could say i am your strength when you feel troubled know that i was there too i was also troubled and know that i am with you and i am your strength that's amazing you know i, I it's if you're a disciple of the lord jesus okay this this next line is kind of rough is it not i mean uh, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. I mean, it indicates that the beloved disciple of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ must follow him. And where are they following him? To his hour. What is the hour? It is the passion and death and resurrection of the Messiah. The Isaiah fifty-two fifty-three. Go and read it. This is what's referenced here. Um, this is why it's such an amazing thing that we get from John's gospel that the beloved disciple standing at the foot of the cross receives the, the blessed Virgin Mary as his mother. Uh, whereas the other disciples who weren't happened to be at the foot of the cross, you know, had to hear about it later. Um, what does that say about us? And about what Christ, what God himself expects of us as disciples? Right. So I think that here, Instead of uh, Cornelius Lape saw this more as a sign of hope rather than a scary idea, 
He said, uh, for Christ foresaw that the apostles and Christians in general would after his death suffer persecution. And accordingly, he here wished to forewarn them and forearm them. Again, and I think that's important. He says forewarn and forearm. So not just to let you know, oh, this is about to happen, but also build them up so that they're able to withstand it. Again, Christ wished to teach all Christians that they should constantly resist all evil desires and strive against them. Because uh, he says, if you will not bear my death manfully, and he said, and he says, uh, this is, this is Cornelius Lapide. So what he does often is he will take what our Lord says and then basically put it in other words to make it easier, easier to understand. So he's saying that our Lord is basically saying, if ye will not bear my death manfully, mm. no benefits will accrue to you unless ye die yourselves. He says these words of Christ are an axiom and a summary of a Christian's life. And I think this is incredibly important because here, he's not saying that this is something that you should be scared of, but this should comfort you because it will happen. Is There's no doubt about it. You're going to be attacked, mm-hmm. but be aware that with you and what an axiom is, a lot of uh, people use the word axiom without actually knowing what axiom means. It is a foundational belief that undergirds your philosophy. And so here, our Lord is saying that, look, you will suffer. It's no, There's no doubt about it, but you must die to yourselves. You must offer that up. And if you offer it up, then you will be with me in paradise. And that, that is an important, important thing. And that is supposed to bring his apostles hope is uh, to forewarn them and mm. forearm them. Right. And St. John Chrysostom writes that this sounds like a riddle. The reason that it doesn't make sense to us that we should hate this life in the world to keep it unto life eternal is because we haven't seen the beatific vision. But John Chrysostom says that if we could see the beatific vision, the pleasures of this life would seem like nothing. Like I kind of think of like, it's like you've been drinking gas station sour coffee your entire life and then someone (laughs) hands you an iced caramel macchiato. Like that's the beatific vision. You could never go back. And John Chrysostom says like, there, the pleasures of the world to come are just I- unimaginable. You would hate your life here if you knew what was coming because you'd want to be there. You must be reading from the NAB because uh, I think the <laughs> Douay Rheims says peppermint mocha. I'm oh, just, I'm just okay. saying. <laughs> I'm just, coffee's gross. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> it's true. It's like instead of, uh, instead of the Holy Eucharist, we want PB&J. Exactly. Right? Mm, you know, we, 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 we ask for too little from the Lord. Right. And and I I get where Cornelius Lapide is going here. It can be scary to go, but I got to die to self. You know, and I think Cornelius there's a reason why Cornelius Lapide quoted Tertullian. You know. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah. It's going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> Put me over on the side. I'm done, you know. That kind of Oh, he actually mentions that. that he kind says of heroic martyrdom. He, he he references back to St. Lawrence. He's like, yeah, this passage is often read on the feast of St. Lawrence yeah. because wow. uh the because of this exact point. Yikes. All right. Uh let's move on to uh, I, I, this is one of my favorite aspects of, uh, of this particular passage, this next line. I am troubled now, yet what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But it was for this purpose that I come to this hour. I love, love, love this line. It feels so heroic and courageous and manly and like draw the line in the sand and this this far and no further like you want me to save my skin are you out of your mind i'm gonna nail my own hands to that wood it feel it just feels so like tertullian like you know it just feels incredible that the, he knows that even peter who is with him would try to get him to uh, try to prevent him tempt him even to not die on that cross because that's the ultimate goal here 
The devil doesn't want Jesus to die on the cross. The devil wants to out him or figure him out. Is this the real Messiah or not? And if so, he doesn't want him to die. He wants him to fall to temptation. The temptation is he can save himself because he's, because he's the Messiah, right? He can call on the angels to save lest he dash his foot against a stone. And he could call down the legions of angels to wipe out these people that would want to crucify him and tempt him and tempt him and tempt him to not save my soul or your soul or the souls of so many others that desperately need it. And here he is just like, what, save myself from this hour? Are you out of your mind? Of course I'm going to go to Calvary and you need to be coming with me. I don't know. I find that incredibly provocative. Well, the one thing uh, from Cornelius Lapide, he talks about this passage in this manner. He says, uh, quoting the scripture, Father, he said, save me from this hour. Just as in the garden, he prayed, let this cup pass from me. Now, Cornelius Lapide goes on to quote uh, St. John Chrysostom, and he says, he gives this reason. Having exhorted his disciples to follow him even to death, for fear they should say that he could easily philosophize about death. Now, th- what is he trying to say here? Cornelius Lapide is saying, look. Our Lord needed to do this. Why did he need to do this? Because if he did not do this, it would be uh, reasonable for people to look at the death of our Lord and be like, oh, well, you know, Jesus, he was God. So, you know, he could philosophize about death. He understood it, but he didn't actually experience the pain and suffering and the agony of death and of the fear of death. And so he goes on and says he showed that he was in an agony and yet that 